Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on topics in Jewish philosophy, theology, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy. Rabbi Dr. Tatz, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is Jewish Bioethics. So to begin, what are the kind of questions that bioethicists deal with in general? First of all, let me thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here and to try to answer some questions. Um, maybe I'll just say a word of introduction about myself, if that's okay with you, just so your your listeners uh, know who's uh, who's speaking. My own. My name is Akiva Tats. I was raised in South Africa, where I studied medicine, and uh, after that went on to you know yeshiva studies and rabbinics and so on. But I have a special interest, a special love for Jewish medical ethics, what we call medical halacha. And I function quite often as a consultant in, uh, you know, trying to bridge the gap between secular and religious ethics and trying to advise medical establishment on how to respect Orthodox Jewish patients' wishes and uh, and a bit more broadly as well. I uh, spent many years in, in general practice, internal medicine, family medicine. I was an army doctor in South Africa for two years during a border conflict. I mean, I was put into the firing line literally in terms of medicine and uh, and ethics you know the first uh, in fact the first day i was sent into the border conflict zone two of my friends were shot now one survived one died but it was a very difficult time in south africa with the apartheid era which raised its own moral and ethical dilemmas and uh, so i've spent many years you know thinking about these areas i wrote a book a couple of years ago which your listeners might be interested in if they're interested in the subject and that's called dangerous disease and dangerous therapy that is a detailed account in english with a lot of references on, you know, triage problems and uh, <coughs> prioritization of resources and uh, terminal care principles, trying to point out where Judaism differs from uh, from secular ethics. So that's the background. Um, your first question was, what are the kinds of questions that ethicists, medical ethicists deal with in general? And I presume you mean in general, not specifically Jewish, just to begin. Yes. Okay. So, Let's give a very brief introduction to that. Uh, today, medical ethics is a recognized subspecialty or at least a recognized field within medicine. In fact, there are people who spend their lives in so-called medical ethics. And the kinds of issues that ethicists deal with in general are things you might expect, you know, societal priorities, for example. This has come to the fore in the COVID era. That's a broad societal triage question. How do we apportion scarce resources, machines? Do we have different triage principles when it comes to individuals as opposed to communities? Is the community an entity, philosophically speaking and practically? So ethicists deal with the, I would say, the practice of medicine in practice. In other words, you know, medical school teaches you initially basically plumbing. I would would put it that way. But how to use the plumbing. You know, the first patient I ever had was a young lady who walked in asking for an abortion. Now, the technical aspect of the abortion was quite easy. The plumbing, so to speak, was no problem. But for the first time, I had to sit back and say to myself, one second, you know, is this okay? Is this allowed? The fact that I know how to do it and can can produce a relatively safe, you know, termination of that pregnancy, there's no guidance within what they taught me at medical school about whether one should or should not, you know, the, the what ought to be as opposed to the what is. This has become much more recognized as a, as a field. One of our issues with secular medical ethics that's being taught today is that it doesn't have a position. I mean, that's its strength and its weakness. It doesn't have an attitude. In other words, they'll teach you at medical school the ethical issues, 
that abortion is an, eth- an ethical issue, but which, what to do about it, they won't tell you. They do a good job of presenting an array of opinions. The religious position is this, the Catholic position is that, Orthodox Jews believe this, uh, secularists will believe that. You know, so they'll do a good job of showing the array of issues, but of course there's no guidance. Where we differ, of course, is we have a prescriptive approach to these things, not only descriptive. Um, let me finally uh, round up or round off the answer to your first question by giving you a framework. Secular ethicists or ethicists in general around the world over the last couple of decades have come to an agreement that there's a hierarchy or at least a list of principles or criteria that they apply. And when I tell you the, the list of, the, of criteria, I think that'll give you a, a, a sort of a, a broad brushstroke picture of the kinds of issues they deal with. And uh, this, is, this is the so-called Georgetown mantra, the four, the four classic or major ethical principles on which all bioethical decisions are or should be based. And this is a very, very broad consensus. I wouldn't say everybody holds of these principles, but in the world of medical ethics in general today, um, this is the uh, very, very well-accepted hierarchy of principles. These were put forward by uh, uh, two, uh, two, two famous autists, uh, authors um, in, a, in a classic textbook. The, the, the names of the authors are Beauchamp and Childress, and they put together these, these criteria. I'll tell you what they are very briefly. The principles are, first of all, autonomy. Notice, by the way, that that comes at the head of the list. I'm not sure it does in Jewish medical ethics, although we do certainly subscribe to the principle of autonomy. But that's the first principle. It's my life and I'll do what I want with it. And that all else being equal trumps all other values. You ask the patient what they want. Um, this is the major principle. It's a particularly uh, stridently taught principle in America. You know, the American society is very individualistic. Eastern societies tend to value communities over individuals in a certain to a certain extent, whereas American culture is probably the pinnacle of, you know, the individualist, the what I like to call the Lone Ranger, you know. Um, and if you don't like it, I might pull out a six gun and, you know. Um, so that's a very individualistic approach to things. And the first principle is autonomy. Just to mention briefly, we have a little bit of a cynical take on this because we see it's, it's observed very well when the patient expresses the autonomy to want to die, secular ethics is very happy to accommodate when the patient expresses the, uh, a desire to live at all costs, they don't always feel so sanguine about uh, accepting autonomy. But be that as it may, that's the first principle. The second principle is justice. Justice means you may have an autonomous wish to have this ventilator or this dialysis program or whatever it is, but it may not be just. In other words, distributive justice. You can't have what you want if it conflicts with somebody else's need who may have a higher priority. And obviously, the problem here is how do you apportion, how do you stratify or appropriately situate in your hierarchy these values. The third value is called beneficence, which means that it's a fundamental to the practice of medicine or bioethics in general to act for the good of the patient or the person or the society. And the fourth one is non-maleficence. Of course, you must do nothing to harm. Now, a moment's thought will show you that in Judaism, we accept all four, but the devil, as they say, is in the details. Autonomy, yes, but we have certain limits on it. Justice, of course, but it has to be Jewish justice. Beneficence, well, it depends how you define it. Today, very often in secular ethics, they define death as for the patient's benefit when they're suffering terribly. Uh, we wouldn't say that's illogical. It just happens to be forbidden in most circumstances in Judaism. And non-maleficence, of course, and you can, I'm sure you can hear overtones of the Hippocratic oath here in these, in these principles. 
but non-maleficence means you may do nothing that harms the patient. And of course, here again, the problem will be what is called harm. Today, it's broadly accepted in some jurisdictions that you can actually kill a patient in a merciful fashion where that might be considered for the patient. That's not called maleficence. And in Judaism, it certainly would be called a maleficent act, at least, at least legally. So very briefly, that's a summary of um, secular ethics, the kinds of things that ethics deal with, and a beginning of an insight from a Jewish point of view. So yeah, that leads on to the second question. So what is different exactly about uh, Jewish bioethics? Um, where do Jewish bioethicists, such as yourself, where do they turn for, for answers to the questions? Okay, so first of all, from a world, a world outlook point of view, what we call a Ashkafa point of view, the first point to note is that in Judaism, we don't really have a field called ethics. Very interesting. In the secular world, we have a field called law and a field called ethics. Uh, legal theorists divide them up very neatly. Uh, law is attending only to, to, uh, to rights. In other words, you have a duty where someone else has a right and it uh, protects rights. But it's not prescriptive in terms of moral actions. For example, there's no law that mandates that you shall give charity, right? Or be kind to people or, uh, uh, go out of your way to help. You know, there's no, there's no law like that. And it's not in the purview, not because the law is deficient. It's not in the purview of law to do that, right? So, uh, and in fact, this accords rather well with the Jewish teaching that the non-Jewish world is subject to seven basic moral principles. And most of our commentaries point out that all of them are negatives. Thou shall not kill, thou shall not commit adultery, not torture animals, etc. They're all negative, except the seventh one, which is the mandate to establish a system of law and order. But even that, the, most of our commentaries say, is actually a negative command as well. It's the positive, uh, um, uh, let's say, in, enforcement, I would say, of the other six, which are. So these are what you shall not do in order not to cause damage. But there's no, there's no secular law that says, again, that you must go out and do something beyond, you know. Now, in Judaism, we have two sets of laws, negative and positive. So just as much as a law in Judaism not to hurt or injure, you have a, a mandate from the same source, a unitary source, namely the Torah, that, that mandates that you shall go out and provide for someone's needs when he's hungry or clothe the naked and feed the hungry. So we regard those as two branches of law. We don't have a separate thing called ethics, which is, which is beyond the law. We don't have such an idea. And therefore, you won't find terminology in Judaism talking about medical ethics or, you know, if we do talk about ethics, what we really mean is the basic aspect of being refined human being with a sense of justice and rectitude, the, 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 um, the general phrasing of that in Torah is Derech Eretz Kadmah La Torah. That means you ought to be fair-minded and balanced and a well-adjusted person with moral sensitivity before you engage Judaism. Amazing thing. Although we teach that the Torah contains everything, despite that, before you engage Torah, we expect you to be a balanced, thoughtful, objective, kindly, uh, you know, we expect all that as, as part of the basic human, human character. So, we don't separate ethics from law. We understand that all obligations, negative and positive, emanate from a unitary source, a divine lawgiver. That's the first point. The second point is when it comes down to, to the law or ethics, whichever word you want to use in medicine, as I began to say, we agree with the principles in outline, but very often we disagree with the application. And of course, we could spend hours talking about this. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. The first and foremost principle in their hierarchy is autonomy, uh, which means it's my life and I'll do what I want, and that's the paramount value. And they take that to quite an extreme degree. Um, if I, as a doctor, get a patient who refuses a blood transfusion, for example, for example, a Jay's witness, 
They come in, they refuse a blood transfusion. They believe that it's a, it's a, it's a divine prohibition. Of course, we disagree most, most clearly with that. And they refuse a blood transfusion. I, as a doctor in any Western democracy, I'm obliged to stand there and watch the patient die. I mean, I do what I can, of course, but I may not transfuse them. In Judaism, that's completely unthinkable. You certainly have autonomy, but it's limited. And you're not free to um, discard your life uh, because it's, it may be your desire. I was at a... Um, I was at a medical conference some time ago. One of the doctors there told me about a colleague of his uh, in, in ER, emergency room, what we call a casualty doctor in California. Four o'clock in the morning, he got a terminally ill AIDS patient who had said that he never wanted to be ventilated if he was in respiratory failure. That was the situation. But it was four in the morning, nothing in writing. The doctor was hesitant. It's a life and death question. Intubated patient to put him on ventilation. And uh, he's now being sued in California for assault and wrongful life. And if he loses the case, he loses his license to practice medicine. That's for saving a life. In Judaism, that is absolutely perverse, and that is not the case. Now, I'm not saying that there are certainly circumstances in Judaism where you are permitted to desist from life-saving treatment. That's true. But, um, but uh, there's no such thing as a charge of wrongful life in, in Orthodox Judaism. So, so uh, that's where we would disagree. The basic reason for this disagreement is that it's a fascinating thing to know that in Jewish law, the reason you don't have autonomy, very interesting. You might think the reason is because God's law super, supervenes, you know, on your, on your attitude to your life and your body. But there's, some other, there's a more subtle reason, and it's fascinating to know. The reason in Judaism that you don't have unbridled and absolute autonomy is because we don't regard it as your body or your life in the first place. The Jewish view is that your body and your life have been loaned to you. You're a trustee. You are obliged to take care of those and guard them safely and, and maximize their, their, their output and their benefit and give them back loyally when, they, when you are required to do so at the end of your life. And therefore, you're not regarded as owning your body in the first place. So you obviously you cannot have absolute autonomy on something that's not yours. I'll give you a beautiful example of this. Many beautiful examples, but I'll give you one. Oh, I'll give you two. I'll give you two. You tell me that your students are philosophers and I'm sure they're well read. There's a wonderful analysis in the writings of a man called Rav Shlomo Yosef Zevin. Rabbi Zevin was a very charismatic, interesting thinker. He died maybe uh, a couple of decades ago. He was the original editor of the Encyclopedia of the Talmud. Fascinating and very creative individual. His books are highly readable and uh, amazing, amazingly refreshing uh, Jewish legal halachic works. One of his writings is absolutely outstanding. Rabbi Zevin has the most amazing and beautiful analysis of the Merchant of Venice. Now, in Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, as no doubt you know, um, Antonio is uh, borrowing money from Shylock, the, you know, the, the uh, problematic, has a very, very anti-Semitic work. Shakespeare probably never met a Jew. You know, the Jews had been expelled from, Egypt, from, from England, but be that as it may, the Merchant of Venice, Shylock, lends money to Antonio, and the deal is that if Antonio cannot pay the loan back in time, the f he, what, what he will forfeit, in other words, the surety or security that he gives on his loan is a pound of flesh. And Shylock will have the right to hack out a pound of Antonio's flesh if he cannot pay, and that he, that's what he will take as settlement of his, of his debt. So Rabbi Zevin analyzes that contract through the eyes of Halakha. What would be the Halakhic view of a contract where you pledge a part of your body uh, in surety for a for a loan. Fantastic uh, analysis. He actually wasn't the first to analyze 
the merchant of Venice from Malachi point of view. And Rabbi Zevin comes to the interesting conclusion that the contract's invalid, not because of cruelty or pain or suffering, but because Shiloh, Antonio's body doesn't belong to him in the first place. And therefore, you cannot pledge collateral with something that you don't own. And since the human body does not belong to you in the first place, that's why the contract's invalid. It's worth reading. It's actually been printed in English as well, for those of you who are listeners who are interested. I'll give you a second example, and then we'll move on to another question. The second example I would give you is this. The great Radbaz, Rav David Ben Zimri, a major towering halachic personality, lived in Egypt about 600 years ago. We have thousands of his responsa actually today. Um, very, very famous and uh, I would say fundamental figure in the, in the annals of, of halachic um, thinking. So he, he makes the following observation. I like to point this out to doctors because it's very, it's pithy and, and makes the point beautifully. He says that in Jewish law, you cannot testify about yourself, right? You cannot give evidence or testify uh, about yourself. The reason is in Judaism, it's you are not considered valid to testify about a relative, okay? You cannot, you can't testify. There's obvious vested interests and ulterior motives and, uh, and biases. You cannot testify. By the way, your wife is not considered a relative. Your wife is considered you. Important point. Your relatives are considered your relatives. Your wife is considered an aspect of yourself. But be that as it may, you cannot testify against a relative. Now, the Talmud says you are your own closest relative, right? Stands to reason. And therefore, if you're not believed about your brother or your spouse, you are not believed about yourself, and that is completely invalid. You cannot testify against yourself. That's called En Adomesimatsmarosha. You cannot testify about yourself completely invalid. In fact, we take that to such an extreme degree that the Talmud says that if a person tries to incriminate himself in court, it's absolutely struck from the record in, a, in, a, in amazing. For example, let's say a person says they committed a sexual crime. They admit to a sexual sin or sexual crime, specifying themselves and the partner with whom they committed the crime. So the Talmud says we hear the testimony about the partner, but not about themselves. In other words, your testimony about the other person, that person committed adultery or whatever it was, that evidence stands in court. But with whom? That's struck from the record because you can't testify against yourself. So to an extreme degree, we don't allow a person to incriminate themselves. And then Rabbi, the Radbaz makes an amazing observation. He says, if you look carefully, you notice that this law applies only in criminal matters, but not civil matters. That means when it comes to the death penalty or lashes, now's not the time to go into the issue of a death penalty or, or corporal punishment in Judaism. They happen to be almost impossible to apply. But be that as it may, Nominally, at least in Torah, <coughs> there is a death sentence and a punishment uh, of, of lashes. And those are, you are invalid to testify in such cases about yourself. However, in a, in a civil case, you fully believed. You want to say you embezzled, fraud, stole, theft, burglary. That's completely acceptable. You are allowed to incriminate yourself. So the Radbaz says, what's going on? He says, if the Torah doesn't trust you, because you've got vested interests and ulterior motives and biases when it comes to criminal matters, how come the Torah trusts you to talk about about financial matters, civil matters? I mean, you've got plenty of bias over there. There may be major bias. And conversely, if the Torah does trust you to testify about yourself and possibly incriminate yourself in, in civil matters where money's involved, why doesn't it trust you in, in, capital, in capital matters? And he has the most exquisite and beautiful answer. He says the reason the Torah doesn't believe you when it comes to capital matters, when the question is, is lashes or death, because it's not your body. It's not your life and it's not your body. Who are you 
to testify to get this body lashed or this life extinguished. It ain't yours. Your money is yours. You want to pay? Pay, baby, pay. You know, it's yours. Of course, your money is a trusteeship as well to be wisely used, but it's in your jurisdiction. Your money is in your legal jurisdiction. You want to burn it or throw it away. It's fully legal, acceptable. It may be a moral deficiency, but it's uh, acceptable. And therefore, the Torah says, you want to confess to theft? Go around ahead. You confess and you'll, you'll pay. But when it comes to lashes or death sentence, it's not your body in the first place. And there are many other examples. But uh, just to give you a bit of a flavor, in answer to your question, where do we differ from secular ethics? And therefore, because we are looking to a higher power and our sources for law emanate from the Torah. So although we agree in principle with autonomy, we don't agree in, 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 in always in application. There are many other examples. So, we could, yeah. Yeah. So uh, if I can get to the, th- the, the third question. And, but isn't it somewhat dangerous to use an ancient um, code of ethics like um, the Talmud or other, other works or the works of the Radbaz, uh, which are not necessarily, they weren't, they're not living nowadays, they're not living with the, the current ethical climate and things like that. Is it sensible um, or even, is, it, is it even possible to use such a, a code of ethics to be relevant and um, to modern day bioethical questions? That's a nice, that's a nice question. You, that's, that's a whole bunch of questions you've asked me. Is it safe? Did you said, is it wise? <laughs> is it practical? There's a whole bunch of questions. So let's, let me, yeah, we'll, okay, we'll, we'll stick to one that was of them. A sandwich. That was a sandwich of questions, but they all re- revolve around the same theme. And I would say this, our view is that it's dangerous to do otherwise, to go, to be blown with the winds of time. You know, when my father practiced medicine before me, he was taught certain principles, uh, you know, and, um, and, uh, and today the, the view changes, you know, in his day, you did everything to save the life of the patient. Today, we're more concerned about quality of life. We'd rather let the patient die a dignified and painless death than, than push on because quality of life has superseded as a value. Quantity of life, 50 years ago, it was the, the reverse. Who knows what it will be in 50 years time. And therefore, if you are blown with the winds of time, you know, fashions, fashions change. We like to think in the West that we're advancing and getting better all the time. But if you look at history, you'll see it's nothing like that at all. There have been ups and downs, some of the worst atrocities, the worst atrocities by, you know, without any question have been committed in recent memory, you know, in our highly sophisticated and, uh, and uh, ethically advanced society. And so we have a bit of a cynical view of that. Furthermore, I think the logical answer to your question is, is it wise to use an ancient system? The question to ask is, which system is it wise to use? And the answer is the right one. <laughs> The answer is the right one. You would not ask me whether it's sensible to use ancient mathematics. It's very sensible to use ancient mathematics. You know, uh, Euclid's principles of geometry are still applicable today. In the plane, of course, there's, there's, there are more sophisticated geometries. But within the parameters that, that, that he spoke, um, or Archimedes, or, or, you know, any of the others. So is it sensible to use Newtonian physics? And, and, and absolutely, within, within its own borders and parameters. And therefore, the question to ask is not whether it's old or new, but whether it's right or wrong. And when you're talking about timeless values, the value of human life, it's not a modern or ancient question, right? The human being has a life, and that life is of a certain value, and that's a spiritual principle, and that principle transcends time. And therefore, we have no, we have no, on the contrary, our view is if it stood the test of time, it's more like, <laughs> we think it's more likely to be right than the ones that happen to be recent. Uh, you know, I've been telling people with regard to the COVID vaccine, you know, uh, my medical intuition is that it's new. It's new. And we know that uh, most medical therapies 
you know, things are discovered about them as time goes by. I think the vaccine should be given to the vulnerable people. I think the balance of probabilities in very vulnerable people, vulnerable people with a rampant epidemic, I think makes a lot of sense. But to give it to children or teenagers who are not themselves at high risk at the moment, I would prefer to to wait. There's some there's some response at dealing with vaccines. Talking here about smallpox vaccines going back a hundred years, and there one of the rabbis at least who answered such a question. He's very much in favour of the vaccine. Try not to be one of the the first hundred people who <laughs> you get very sensible. You don't have to race to be the first one. You know, I mean, and therefore, and therefore, things that stand the test of time. Now, a lot of falsehood stands the test of time as well, of course. But be that as it may, our attitude is we are looking for the right set of values. And of course, if something new comes along that has proofs and stands that uh, up to the rigorous standards of evidence and so forth, then we'll, we'll consider that too. And therefore, it's our pride to stay with an ancient system that has stood the test of time, brought us to this point. The survival of the Jewish people is, is virtually an open miracle. So we think that sticking with these values on the contrary, you know, my, my intuition after years of practicing medicine is that what you want is a solid anchor. You know, you want an anchor in values that are timeless. The applications of the values, absolutely. Orthodox Judaism is an incredibly dynamic. People regard it as an old, carved in stone, stayed. But it's not like that at all. Orthodox Judaism is an incredibly dynamic working through. When you look through the responsa of modern rabbinic authorities dealing with ventilators and, you know, the latest move, the latest move has been to put a ventilator on a timer. So you put the patient on the machine, the, pa- the machine automatically switches off and allows the patient to die passively. That's very interesting. W- w- what kind of place does that occupy? You know, you have a person who's in respiratory failure. You're afraid to put them on a machine because you may never get them off. What do you do? You send them home to die because you want to assure that you're treatable patients and you have to discern between the ones you think will recover and the ones that won't. And I may tell you that even South African doctors don't always get that right. Well, there's a new solution. Put the patient on a machine, give them a trial of therapy, but the machine only works for three days. We say to the patient, we'll treat you aggressively with antibiotics and so on during these three days. If you turn the corner, we'll keep the machine going. But if it becomes apparent that you're hopeless and terminal, we'll simply stand back when the machine switches off and we'll give it to someone else. And if you accuse me of using the machine to kill someone, we didn't kill the person. We gave him three extra days. We gave him a trial of therapy that he wouldn't have otherwise. Now, how does that fit in Halachic? Mount Sinai Hospital in New York told me that they're considering putting all their intensive care ventilators onto timers very soon, right? And coming to a hospital near you soon probably will be a machine like this. Now, you know, you, you throw that at one of the modern rabbinic thinkers. So he has to be extremely flexible to find the Talmudic source for this sort of thing. And therefore, in brief, the answer to your question is we have tried and tested solid Values that go back to an absolute source can't do better than that. But we have the thrill and the creativity of seeing how those are modified and applied throughout time. And uh, that's our system. All right, Dr. Tatz, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Bert. All the best to all your listeners and uh, best wishes. Thank you for listening to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. You can also visit us on Twitter for discussions and updates on every